Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Everything Cooperative. We have a nice sunny day this morning in the Washington, D.C. area. And we have the first of four co-op honorees, co-op heroes uh, on the day. Mr. Appleby. Terry, how are you doing this morning? Just fine. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being on. You know, normally we are celebrating Women's History Month, but we're trying to get the four inductees on so you could make it today. And we're glad that you are on this day at the end of March and we can celebrate your life. I am just impressed. You know, first off, Terry, I'm impressed with your pictures. Everyone I see, you're smiling. Look like you just come off the tennis court. You have a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm a retired guy now, so I am having a lot of fun. I had a great co-op career, and that, that was fun as well. That's what I was getting ready to ask you. It looked like you've had a lot of fun in your career. Yeah. So you started out in 1980 or something in a co-op in Seattle? Is that right? That's right. At Puget Consumers Co-op, I was uh, working in a small natural food store in Seattle, and a friend told me about this democratically managed co-op that uh, piqued my interest, and I applied and got a job there and ended up working there for uh, 12 years uh, very uh, happily and uh, productively, and it was, a, it was a wonderful experience for me. So you started out as a store clerk. I did. I was hired to uh, manage, or not manage, but uh, to um, work in the dairy department and uh, as it happened the within the first 5 minutes of my tenure at a co-op I uh, had an accident and dropped uh, probably 50 or 60 gallons of glass bottled milk onto the floor <laughs> and uh, and thought well you know this is the That's end the of end my of cooperative career <laughs> However, one thing that happened out of that was that the CEO, whose um, office was right below where the accident occurred and was being showered with milk, ran right upstairs and helped me to clean up. And I thought, gosh, this is the kind of organization I want to work for if the CEO can come and help me clean up a mess like this. A a mess that you made. (laughs) Yeah, right. So instead of getting fired, you met the CEO in your first five minutes. That's right. (laughs) Okay. That's right. That is a great story. I, um, and and what, what caught your attention about democratically controlled? You said your friend told you it was a democratically controlled organization. Yeah. Well, uh, I had been working for, uh, as I said, a small natural food store 
we were in the midst of a contentious organizing campaign trying to bring a, a labor union into the into the store or the organization and uh, it was very frustrating and i found out about this democratically managed organization and and it was a revelation to me going to work somewhere where your opinion was not only sought, it was valued. And um, unfortunately, I, I worked there for a couple of years under democratic management, and it was a terrific experience for me. However, it was a, a pretty inefficient way for us to, to work. Uh, everybody wasn't as dedicated as some to the principles of democratic management. And the board ultimately decided that they wanted to hire a general manager, which uh, kind of started a period of rapid growth for the for the co-op there in Seattle. But elements of this democratic management system kind of hung on, especially in the way that the cooperative treated its workers, how it valued their input, and so forth. So... It says that you're from New Jersey. How'd you get out to Seattle? That's a little, well, bit, a little I, bit of distance. Yeah. After I graduated from uh, grad school in Louisiana, my wife and I, uh, we were married in Philadelphia. And then uh, she went to the University of Washington as a graduate student in comparative literature. And I went and had to find work so um we we ended up uh she and at the university of washington and me in the grocery business it wasn't something that i had uh planned at all but uh it turned out to be a fulfilling career for me so you were in grad school in louisiana what'd you get your degree in latin american studies ah really helpful Really helpful in the store, okay, grocery store business. Did you? Yeah, well, I wouldn't say it was exactly helpful, but it, uh, you know, it, it gave me a um, a broad uh, uh, understanding of uh, of an important region and uh, the people who lived there, and uh, I guess I guess it was helpful in my career. Did you learn in your? Career? Did you learn anything about this cooperative business model, this democratically controlled organization? Well, I, I, I didn't know much about cooperatives before I actually started to work for PCC. I kind of had this vague understanding of co-ops because I lived in New Jersey and Ocean Spray, which is a a very large uh, grower cooperative, had a bottling plant in my hometown. So I had heard about co-ops, but I I didn't really know anything about the principles or the history of cooperatives until I moved to Seattle, got a job with PCC, and started to learn through groups that we formed within the co-op about the history of co-ops. And, and then I became uh, an advocate and a devotee. But uh, throughout my career, I maintained a large
large library of, of books on co-ops, and I continually learned about the history and and the movement. History and movement. Okay, I yeah. learned nothing about it in my public education or couple master's degrees, nothing about co-ops anywhere. Right. Uh, right. And when I started, manage, I, I manage and my day job is managing apartment buildings, condos, and co-ops. So I learned about co-ops by managing them and then just fell in love with. Devotee is a good word, uh, but I love this model uh, and yes. what it can do for everyday people. Mm-hmm. Okay. It certainly, certainly can. So you Puget Consumers Cooperative for 12 years, started in 1980, then in 92, you decided to go back to Jersey. Actually, to uh, New Hampshire. Okay. Yeah, my wife and I were both from the East Coast, and at that point in 1992, we had three kids, and we were pretty busy schlepping them back and forth every every year for... Uh, family reunions and vacations and and uh when I got the opportunity at Hanover Consumer Co-op in in New Hampshire I applied and and got that job and and moved east So what was that job? Uh the general manager of of the organization they had had um uh, a very strong management uh from the 1940s, a, a family, um, Harry Gerstenberger and his nephew Arthur had come to Hanover in 1949, and Harry was the general manager until 1963, and then his nephew Arthur became the general manager until he retired in 1989, I believe. So there was this long history of good management, and then they were going through a period of a little bit of turmoil as far as management was concerned there at Hanover, and they hired me in 1992. So you went from a clerk to a general manager in 12 years, or yeah. were you general manager back in PCC? No, I uh, I had been uh, on a uh, management team and then my boss, who, who was the general manager, left the organization, and um, three other uh, management team people and I served as the sort of in, in the position of general manager for one year until they hired another general manager. So I was in management as the merchandising director, but I wasn't the general manager at that time. That sounds like a real a steep curve in 12 years to go from store clerk to be on the management team. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I thought you said, and, and it was well-deserved, and you really worked hard to get there. Okay. So what was it like when you went in, oh, back when you went to Hanover, now you're the general manager, 40 years that they have had this management team, three years is unstable or they're trying to figure out what they're doing, leadership. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what was that like for you coming in there? Well, it, it was a big change for, for everybody, for me and for, for the employees there. Everybody that I talked to was kind of nervous, uh, 
were, were things going to change dramatically, I'd walk around with a notebook and make notes, and people would uh, ask me, oh, are we going to have these dramatic changes? And my my feeling was that they had been running a, a fine organization for many years, and my uh, my job was to get things um, c- continued to move ahead. But I also had ideas about growth and work that we could do with other cooperatives, and that's kind of uh, where I reassured the staff and the board that um, I had a vision, and uh, they accepted that, and the rest is uh, the work that I that I did for the next uh, 25 years. So we're going to take our first break. And we're going to come back and talk about the next 25 years and the work that you did, uh, the lessons that you learned, and the kinds of the kinds of things in this next 40 minutes or so that you'd like to pass on to people about this whole cooperative model, how it works, how it doesn't work, and all of that. But sounds great. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative, and Terry Appleby is our guest. This program is sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, whose mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. And NCB has been a great partner for this program. Terry, we've been on for five and a half years now. And it's been learning a lot about the cooperative world. And Terry spent 12 years in Seattle at the Puget Sound uh, Consumer Cooperative. And then he went on to Hanover, where he spent 25 years. And we want to talk more about the kinds of things he did in Hanover. So, okay, you got started, Terry, and people were a little nervous about what you were going to do, whether you're going to make major changes and you just had told them you have a vision of working with other cooperatives, which is the sixth principle of co-ops and growth. Right. How did you go about doing that? Or, Well, first of all, I learned a lot by just walking around and talking to people. One of the key problems that I sort of focused in on right away was the relationship that the co-op had with its with its many vendors, especially uh, the agricultural community. Our our co-op had what I called a toxic relationship with farmers who supplied us with fresh vegetables and fruits throughout the summer season. And uh, one of the things that I wanted to focus on first was improving the relations with that key element of our uh, of our vendor community. Mm-hmm. So we 
uh, instituted uh, pretty soon after I got to Hanover um, meetings with our vendors uh, and our our local farmers, and they were they were very nervous about that relationship and the difference that that we could make in in trying something new. But what we did was we said to them, "Look, right now we have twenty farmers who are selling us pumpkins in October, but we don't have anybody selling us." squash, and we don't have anybody selling us broccoli and so forth. So we brought them all into a room, and we split up the things that each farmer would sell to us. So one farmer would sell us strawberries, one farmer would commit to selling us corn and so forth. And we guaranteed them that we would pay them a price that would allow them to make money and that would allow the co-op to be profitable. And the end result was a, a completely changed relationship with those vendors. It was an incredible change that happened. And it was all because we were listening to them and we were adhering to the seventh cooperative principle of concern for community. In addition, our board had adopted over a period of years, a a policy governance uh, set of policies where they told me how uh, the end results that they wanted to get from our relationships in various ways, whether it was how we treated the environment or how we treated our vendors and those types of things. So one of their ends was, uh, was, was an enhanced agricultural community and that's that's how we addressed that end so that's how I sort of approached the work right away was just trying to build win-win relationships I'm I'm sitting here just sort of struck Uh, my mouth is open trying to say how do you do this you got okay you got to set a price to sell to the customers where they are satisfied. Yep. And the customers are, is this a consumer co-op where the customers are the owners? It is. Yep. Okay. So you've got to yep. satisfy your owners yep. at a price for corn and yep. strawberries and yep. broccoli, all of these things. Yep. And you set that price so that the co-op can make money and the farmer can make money. That's right. That's right. That seems to be almost conflicting. You said, but you could do it and it'd be win-win. Well, yeah. It's Not only was it win-win, there was another win, and that win was for the consumers. What we found was that by treating the farmers correctly, they increased the efficiency of their, of their operations. They had a steady market. So they would do things like build uh, greenhouses, and they extended the growing season. And so what, what, what actually happened was they became more efficient. They made money on their product. And we now have a situation where in the summer we sell local 
lettuce, for example, at the same price as we would sell it if we were buying it from California and shipping it all the way across the country, you know, how that goes. Mm -hmm. So we have a local product at the same price as product grown in California. The farmers make money. We make money. And the members get the freshest possible product grown in their region. So that's what I call the win-win-win. Now, members, our owners, some of them would uh, occasionally write me letters. I remember specifically one where a member complained to me that about the price of some kind of herb, you know, you uh, cooking herbs like thyme or rosemary, and the price of herbs was something like twenty dollars a pound. And she, or whoever the member was, I don't remember a man or a woman, but the member wrote and said, "What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to uh, put the farmer's kid through college?" And my response was, yes. yes, that's exactly what we're trying to do, because the farmer's kid deserves to go to college. And that is another way that we looked back at the cooperative principles and said, this is the way we're going to show concern for the community, that the farmer's kid goes to college and the CEO's kid goes to college. And our members accepted that that idea, not the idea that they were overpaying for product, because if you take a, a sprig of rosemary that you're going to use in a, in a recipe, it's going to cost you about 10 cents, even though it's 20 cents, $20 a pound, because it weighs virtually nothing, you know, a mm-hmm. small sprig of of herbs. So uh, we had to educate our members around these ideas of fairness and justice with our vendors, and they accepted it, and it became a way that everybody had benefit, found benefit in that in that relationship. So you're now talking about the fifth principle of co-ops, the education information knowledge, education, information. You've talked about the sixth principle, cooperation among co-ops, yeah. and the seventh principle, concern for community. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. It's fascinating because I have an MBA, and in my MBA, it was always taught. All It was like almost all decisions were based on what's the highest return of investment for the shareholder, and that shareholder may live in a different community, a different city, or even a different country. But you're right. trying to figure out how you make that income, that return on that investor, this capitalistic model. And in this model, of this cooperative model, it's how do you have concern for your community, how do you have cooperation among co-ops, and the, the community you're talking about, how do you have concern for the farmer and the farmer's child and uh, the farmer's profit and, and their sort of um, comfort 
Okay. The the farmer to me was always the one that was at brunt end of everything, whether it was a drought or flood or a glut in the, in the market. If there was a whole lot of stuff, the prices went down. If it wasn't a not a lot of stuff, they didn't, didn't have anything to sell. Right. And so in this case, the co-op Hanover Farms and you guys are partnering with teaming up with the farmer. So you have a win, 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 win situation. Your right. staff wins, your customers win, the farmer wins, the environment wins. That's great. Yeah, it was a it was an approach that we and other businesses call the triple bottom line, where we were looking at our profitability, we were looking at the environment, and we were looking at our partners. And all of those have to have to come out ahead. Otherwise, you're paying a price somewhere along the line. If if we we tried to educate members, for example, around the idea of fairly traded products, we brought in bananas, and we said we're only going to sell fairly traded bananas. That, that came from other co-ops, and the price were, was going to be $0.99 cents a pound. And some of our members said, well, That's I can get them somewhere else for $0.49 cents a pound or Terry, $0.59 cents a pound. Terry, we're yes. going to have to take our second break, and we're going to come okay. back and talk more about this triple bottom line. I have yeah. it as people, planet, and profit. Uh, but we'll be right back and talk more about it. It's exciting. Everybody, this is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. And Terry Appleby is our guest. He is a co-op hero, and the Cooperative Heroes, the Cooperative Hall of Fame, is celebrating him and three others May the eighth at the National Press Club. Uh, May the eighth, twenty nineteen. There's going to be a dinner. It's starting at seven o'clock. A reception at six. And from 1.30 to 5, there's going to be sort of the co-op issues and concerns of the day. So I'm looking forward to that. And, Terry, I'm looking forward to meeting you. I'm already excited about the things that you've done. When we took break, we were talking about triple bottom line. And I've heard on this show is people, planet, and profits. So you were talking about fairly traded products and the banana you were going to sell at 99. And one of your customers said, but I can buy it at 49 at other places. What was your response? Well, my response was that in any kind of relationship, if you're, if you're going to have a profit or if you're going to follow the triple bottom line, this idea of people, planet, and planet yeah. that if you're cutting corners, one of those, one of those is, is getting shortchanged. In the case of the bananas, it's the environment. And it's the workers who are exploited uh, in in that chain. And so in order to work in a more equitable manner, we bought these bananas through a company, Equal Exchange, 
which is a cooperative, a workers' cooperative, a purchasing cooperative that buys from other cooperatives and where the members are not exploited in producing the product. And so what we were giving to Equal Exchange was a fair price for their product. They were giving to the farmers that they dealt with a fair price for their product. And again, it was a win-win-win situation. Hopefully, the members, uh, we could educate the members, our members, around this idea of the cost of doing business. If you're in a, an exploitative situation, there's there's a cost, whether it's, whether you're exploiting, over-exploiting the earth or over-exploiting the people who are producing them. There are social costs, there are environmental costs that ultimately have to be paid. And we're hoping to create a system where the costs are paid by the by the consumer up front rather than down the line. This is fascinating. And I think at this time, Terry, I want to give definitions of these different uh, co-ops that we've been talking about. And the definition depends on who owns and controls the co-op. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's owned and controlled by the people that work in the business, is called a worker's co-op. If it's That's owned right. and controlled by the employees, it's a worker co-op. If it's owned and controlled by the consumer, the people that uses the products or services, it's called a consumer cooperative. And examples of those are food co-ops or it's uh, credit unions that own and controlled by the people that deposit their money or housing co-ops and other kinds of businesses could be a consumer co-op. And of course, for a worker co-op, it could be any type of business if it's owned and controlled by the employees. Now, the other two types, the bigger types, is uh, if it is a purchasing co-op, then farmers use these, artists are beginning to use them, where groups of farmers come together and they buy their seed or their fertilizers or whatever, maybe buy equipment like tractors or refrigeration together. So they buy things together and they use these things and they get a lower price and probably a better quality. And on the other end of these farmers or artists, you have a marketing co-op or producer co-ops, different names for them. But you mentioned Ocean Spray already. It's an example where uh, cranberry farmers uh, joined together and created this co-op that now takes the cranberries and make juice out of it or other cranberries uh, sauce. So they make different things, but you have, um, what's it called, Land of Lakes. You have all of these different producer co-ops, marketing co-ops, and I'm beginning to find artists that are coming together and sharing so that they can do different things together. Um, and, and it's a phenomenal way, phenomenal market. So those are the different types, and I notice in your world – you have been using and working with all kinds of different people. You talked about Equal Exchange, which is a worker cooperative. And mm-hmm. I noticed you were on that board. And our first year in the business, we had them at Christmas time, uh, three different shows to get a real rounded sense of Equal Exchange. And I'm just, I, I just really totally, uh, it's sort of like my mind. <laughs> 
and my whole body and soul got excited with the work that they do for every day. And normally low-income people around the world, Latin American and Africa, buying products from them and making sure that people are getting a fair price for their products so that they can feed their families, not just send them to college, but feed their family. And they told me about one case where a farmer said that before they joined the co-op, at the end of the year, they did not have food, okay? And after they joined the co-op, at the end of the year, they had savings. Mm-hmm. Just totally different. So it's, I'm so excited about this model. So you've been dealing with all of that. So I just wanted to get those definitions in as we talk that people may have a good idea of the different types of co-ops because you've already mentioned several of them. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for for the clarity there. So I get that you also, not only were you working with farmers and making sure there was a fair price, but you also encouraged them to create purchasing co-op. What was that process like? And how did you come up with that and sell them on that idea? <laughs> well, actually, that was one of the uh, pieces that didn't work for me. In our local area, I've I've been involved in in the development of of several co-ops in which we were successful. But with our local farmers, we tried to set up a situation where we didn't have to deal with, uh, say, twenty farmers every day bringing their trucks into our stores, and instead talk to them about. Well, what about the idea of setting up a cooperative and cooperatively distributing your products to our stores so that we would be dealing with one entity rather than 20? Not that we didn't want to see our friends, the farmers in our stores, but as a as a business operation, it was more efficient for us to get one delivery from our local farmers rather than 20. They they were never able to come to that agreement themselves, although they did have more productive relationships in working together. They just never formed into a cooperative. I was, however, uh, involved in setting up a larger co-ops. Uh, one of them, the National Cooperative Grocers, is now an organization that encompasses a couple of hundred co-ops and over a billion dollars in retail sales. And we uh, we formed together and have a very profitable relationship through that organization. So I get that they have over 150 co-ops in 37 states. Mm-hmm. Like you said, over a billion dollars of sales. I yeah. It looked like maybe two billion of sales. Okay. Yeah. And this organization provides critical buying power that en- enables the co-op and all of them to to function better, more efficient, get economies of scales, and therefore everybody's better off. The consumer, the, the co-op grocery stores, the farmers, all the way through the whole process. That's right. Yep. And you helped to form that. Yeah, I was in uh, – actually, in 1992, when I was still at uh, – Puget Consumers Co-op, but I was on my way to Hanover, we had a 
a, a conference in Seattle. It was called the CCMA or Consumer Cooperative Management Association Conference. And at that conference, the CEO of Whole Foods, you know Whole Foods, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, John Mackey, came to speak with us. And he told us at that time Whole Foods was a pretty – I mean it was significant in the national food business, but it wasn't a big organization like it is today. But Mackey came and he told us about how he was going to grow his business into 100 stores and a billion dollars in sales by the year 2000. Well, he actually had 200 stores and, yeah, $2 billion in sales by that time, I believe. But uh, it scared the pants off of uh, all the co-op people who were sitting in the room uh, when we when we heard him say that because it was a threat to these natural food co-ops. We didn't have any, any agreements. Uh, we were just a bunch of co-ops meeting together. But coming out of that meeting in 1992, after hearing from John Mackey and hearing what his strategy was going to be, we started to form cooperative grocers associations around the country. The first was in Minneapolis area, and then ours in the Northeast. We called it Co-op Grocers of the Northeast. Mm -hmm. And... um, we started meeting together and developing strategies and and ways of working together. And through that work, we started to talk about a national organization that became the National Co-op Grocers, the one that has nearly $2 billion in sales today. Yeah. And it probably saves the... Uh, the the co-op movement is uh, in in terms of uh, natural food co-ops in a very competitive environment. Yeah. Well, we're going to take our final break, uh, and I I just want to give a shout out to John Mackey for scaring you guys and getting you organized. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay. Yep. He also had said that he was going to put the uh, food co-ops out of business, but that's a whole nother story. We'll be, yep. we'll be right back. <laughs> Please don't touch that down. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. Terry Appleby is our guest today, and he's had a wonderful, wonderful career in the food cooperative world, which we've been talking about. And uh, we've talked about three principles. Um, We talked about the fifth, sixth, and seventh principle, but I want to go, first off, the first principle is just open. Uh, It's open, co-ops are open to anybody, which is one of the reasons I like it, it doesn't make a difference what your politics are, your religion are, your race is, your gender. It just doesn't make any difference. It's open to everybody. It's democratic controlled, uh, one member, one vote. Uh, it's also some, some money involved. You put some money in to become a member. And when and if there's a profit, the members decide how that profit is broken up. There could be dividends. And they have to have the co-op have to have control. The government cannot get in and control it, or even if they get loans, they cannot, uh, the mortgage company or the bank cannot control it. The members have to have control. Terry, I wanted to ask you, how does this the principle of you 
put some money in, get some money out. And how many members did you all end up with at Hanover? You went from three stores to 12 stores when you left. It was you quadrupled the number of the stores. Is that right? Uh, that was a, that was, that was a Puget consumers co-op uh, in Seattle. And they're in, in a very large market. They probably have 100,000 members at this point. In Hanover, we're a sort of rural area. I think Hanover might have 12,000 people uh, in it, um, sparsely populated. We have about uh, over 20,000 members uh, in in our co-op in Hanover and uh, does about 75 million in sales at this point. But, uh, yeah, we grew from one store when I arrived there to four stores today to service auto repair businesses. We had one when I, when I started and uh, an off-site kitchen where we prepare food for our stores. Wow, I never heard of a food co-op that has auto repair. Yeah. I can get my car fixed and eat at the same time. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. So you went from fifteen million to seventy five million in sales under your RAM. You went from one store to four stores. Yeah. And about twenty million members. So how did what was it what 20, was the thousand. Yeah. Twenty thousand. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for getting my zeros right. How, yeah. Yeah. What was the buy in for your to be a member? Uh, there's a, a $50 one-time membership fee. So, uh, yeah, 50 bucks, and, and you're a member. And you, you didn't have to put that money in all at one time. You just uh, shares over, over a period of time. And you'd get all the benefits of membership, uh, voting for the board directors, any discounts uh, that uh, the co-op would offer to its members and so forth. The ability to get a patronage dividend at the end of the year if we made money. So how did you all decide, or how did the members decide what to do with that, uh, if there was a profit or surplus, how did they decide what to do with it? When I first got there, there was an expectation that any profit would be distributed back to the members. 100%. Uh, pretty much, yeah. And uh, that was problematic for us uh, trying to run the co-op because it left us with very few reserves. So in order to increase the reserves of the co-op and the, and the, the common capital of the co-op, we started to issue rather than 100% um, cash uh, dividends, we, we also distributed more shares in the co-op. So I, for example, and now own a, a couple of hundred shares and uh, or maybe, I don't know, a couple hundred uh, dollars worth of shares uh, uh-huh. that have accumulated over the years. But, um, but you still only have one vote? Still, only have one vote. Okay. That's uh, that's okay. the uh, that's the principle. One one member, one vote. So I could own 
$20,000 worth of shares, and I'm sure the co-op would love it if I <laughs> if I bought all those shares, but I would still only have one vote. And that that's a very important principle in cooperatives because otherwise you could buy you could buy Influence. votes and then sway the the business of the co-op in any way that you want it. So um, I have heard on this program that some folks would have they keep one third. The, the members would decide that one third would stay in the business for growth. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> one third would be used for social responsibility, to either help other food co-ops get started or to help the poor folk in the community or whatever. And then one third of it would go toward dividends, sometimes in cash and sometimes in credit so they could come back and buy more. And that dividend wasn't based on the share you had, but it was based on how much you purchased throughout the year. That's right. Okay. That's exactly right. Okay. And uh, that's another reason I like this because it helps people to get financial wealth where you purchase mm-hmm. and social wealth. If this social capital and you put your figure out how you keep improving the community. Right. Yeah. We have a couple of different ways of doing that at Hanover. One of them is with a, with a program that we call uh, pennies for change and uh, members can donate to charitable causes that are delineated every month by uh, if say if their if their bill is uh, twenty five dollars and eighty five cents they can round up to twenty six dollars and fifteen cents would go to this pennies for change program and our members love that program and have over the I think it's been in place for three years now, and it has uh, brought in more than $600,000 for community benefit. In how many years, $600,000? In three years. Three years. All right. Oh, my God. For change. Wow. Pennies for change, yeah. It's just no member is required to uh, participate, but many members do participate. And we give that money to local groups like the Haven, which is a uh, shelter and uh, distributes food to families in need. We also have a program that the co-op set up called Willing Hands, which is a food reclamation program. We used to throw produce that was a little banged up or had a blemish on an apple or something like that would go into the to the dumpster and we had a very community oriented person who was working in our produce department and he said what if we took that all that good produce and started to distribute it and he himself created a nonprofit organization called Willing Hands and last year, we donated, I believe the, the amount was 80 tons, but I know there have been years where we've donated over 100 tons to about 60 nonprofits that distribute food to people in need. So, Terry, 
It sounds fascinating, and I wish we had more time, but we only have about a minute. What would you like to leave people with? Well, my idea would be join co-ops, support co-ops, because they're businesses that support their communities. That's it. I thank you very much, sir. Join co-ops, and the reason the National Co-op Bank sponsors this program is so that you can get the information that you need where you can join a co-op, start a co-op, solve your community problems. That's what it is all about, and that's why I like them. And you can also create wealth, social and financial wealth. Everybody out there, please have a wonderful week. Terry, thank you so very much. I look forward to meeting you on May 8th when we have the dinner to induct you into the Cooperative Hall of Fame. Thank you for taking out the time to be with us today. And everybody out there, please, this week, we'll see you next Thursday. Live cooperatively. <laughs>